As they do, we continue uh, in our verse-by-verse study, if you'll make your way to the book of Philippians, book of Philippians, uh, in our last study in Philippians, we once uh, again dealt with the subject of joy, but we added from verses 1, 2, and 3 a warning, and that was titled, Beware While Rejoicing. And in it, we were reminded that theological heretics abound. It, uh, they did then, they do now, and um, they are used of the enemy to seek to shipwreck our faith. And they have done that successfully in many lives over the centuries. So we are called to live out our joy, as the book of Philippians commands, but we're to do so while being on guard against heresy and the like. This morning, we come to the next section in our study in chapter 3, verses 4 through 11, message that I've titled and with an emphasis being, do not trust in self. Do not trust in self. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 4. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, If any other man thinketh that he hath reasons for which he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. Thank you. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gain to me, those I counted loss for Christ, yea, Doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung or refuse, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. The theme, the title, do not trust in self. And we see at the first part, verses 4 through 6, a lengthy point with, we'll have a number of subpoints that, uh, that are spoken about in verses 4 through 6, but positional righteousness, that is justification. What does justification mean? Uh, it means the time at the point that you were converted, when you were saved, you were made righteous in the eyes of God. You were justified uh, by the Lord, uh, declared uh, um, uh, not guilty, doesn't mean you're innocent, just because it means you're declared not guilty, because you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That type of righteousness, positional righteousness, justification cannot come by the law. Verses 4, 5, and 6 tell us it can only come by faith in the finished work of Christ. Now, folks, this is fundamentally critical theology. One cannot be saved. One cannot have a home in heaven, be a child of God, if he or she thinks uh, it is any other way. There is only one path to eternal life, 
Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So it cannot be both ways. It cannot be by self-effort in keeping, uh, being a good person, keeping the law, obeying the Ten Commandments and the like, and at the same time be by faith alone in Christ alone. It cannot be both ways. And this is arguing that it is only by faith in him. And Paul points out numerous um, uh, illustrations about how this is true. And you'll notice it begins uh, at the wide part of the funnel and then it narrows uh, and it gets more specific throughout his life until uh, he came to the point of actually conversion. And the first thing in verses 4 and 5 tell us that physical attributes do not save. If you'll notice in uh, verse 4, it says, uh, if, I, if anybody can have confidence in the flesh, I more than anyone else circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. He was saying that, that at one time, his physical attributes, that is, he wore the physical mark of being a genuine Jew, of being one who was under the covenant, Abrahamic covenant, that God will have a people. And circumcision, we learned about this a, a week or two ago, was that physical sign uh, for that eight-day-old uh, eight baby boy that uh, he, he would basically, they would raise him in keeping the law. But folks, it's not physical attributes which bring a person into relationship with God. Young people, it doesn't matter how beautiful you are, uh, how handsome you are, how intelligent you are, how educated you are, how rich you are, any kind of attribute that applies to you doesn't matter in gaining God's acceptance. In fact, Scripture speaks about just the opposite is more common. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, listen to, listen to this text. Read this text with me. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, that is wise in humanly speaking, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and the things which are not to bring to nothing things that are. In other words, those who think they're high and mighty, he chooses the weak and beggarly to show that it's not based upon how great you are. Why did he do it? So that no flesh would glory in his presence, but of him, uh, uh, of him and through him, let me go to that, back to that, of him uh, and through him, um, uh, uh, but you are in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness, sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. That's why God did that. He said, I will demonstrate what the qualities are. And it's not being noble, it's not being mighty, it's not physical attributes. It's not being simply a, a part of the nation. It's not being an American. It's not being a church member. It is none of those things. Because if it were any of those things, then you would glory in those things that you have accomplished. And glory would be robbed from God. But if you're going to glory, glory in the Lord. Amen? 
So it is not by the keeping of the law, it is by faith alone. Secondly, Paul said in the, in the next part of verse 5, he said, um, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Um, ethnicity, ethnic identity does not save. Now you'll remember Benjamin along with Joseph. These were the most precious sons of Jacob. Why were Joseph and Benjamin the most precious sons of Jacob? Well, of course, he had the coat of many colors, Joseph did, Benjamin being the baby, but they were the sons of Rachel, his most beloved wife, the, uh, the love of his life. And so her offspring um, became that which those who were most precious. And Paul first called Saul, after the first king of Israel, Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And so Paul was named after the most beloved character of all the Benjamites, namely King Saul. In other words, this is quite a, this is quite a namesake that he had. I mean, he had real naming rights to be a Benjamite and to be a, a Jew and to be named Saul. But Paul said it was not that. Ethnicity doesn't matter to God. You are not a Christian. You are not a follower of the Lord simply because you're an American church member. You say, well, of course that. Folks, there are those who believe that. I believe that until age 20. I believed that I was accepted by God because I'm an American and America is a Christian nation and I was a church member. And after all, all church members go to heaven. I thought... Of course, I hadn't read a verse in Scripture. I didn't know one verse of the Bible. Literally, I didn't know one that I know of. And so, this text tells us it's not ethnic identity. Thirdly, it's not hometown advantage. Notice, he's not only a Benjamite, he's a Hebrew of the Hebrews, of all of those who claim to be sons of Abraham. I rise to the top, so he thought. I'm, uh, he, he, uh, he's lauding his hometown. I'm an Israelite. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Uh, I come from the line of, of King Saul, the first king. Look at me, is what he would say on his resume. But it's not where you're from that makes you a child of God. <clears throat> I, I love Kansas City. I was born and raised in Kansas City. Uh, I was three months old, right, and lived here in Hickman Mills when the, uh, when the tornado came through in 57, two or three months old. Uh, by the way, I lived through that tornado. I was K- I've been Casey bred, uh, and one day I'm going to be Casey dead. But it's not hometown that gets you anywhere with God. It is not meant to be. It's not intended to be. It's not because of anything you can claim that is acceptable to God. Look also at verse 5. Not only Hebrews of the Hebrews, but as touching the law, a Pharisee. It's not legalistic fervor. And the Pharisees certainly had that. They were the cream of the crop in having fervor for the law. To the degree, and Jesus used that, you'll remember uh, in preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, uh, where Marlon... um, Uh, quoted uh, 
Matthew 5, 6, and 7 a few months ago, and the key verse is when he told the crowd, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you do not have life. Well, the people must have just shuddered. What do you mean, my righteousness exceeding the Pharisees? They are the most righteous, of course, in their own eyes. And they made sure everyone else knew it too. But Paul said, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was even a Pharisee. And it didn't count as anything in the eyes of God. It was only self-righteousness. And that doesn't matter. Paul had the best legalistic pedigree in the world. In fact, Acts 22, 3 says, I am verily a man, which am a Jew, born in Tarsus. A city that is, I lived in a Gentile place, city of Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. Brother Page quoted that this morning's Sunday school opening. I found that interesting. Uh, a, a, a very learned uh, Jewish Hebrew scholar. And taught according to the perfect manner of the uh, law of the fathers and was zealous toward God. I had a pedigree a mile long. I had a resume that no one could match. And Paul said, before God, it did not matter one tiny bit. I was lost. I was a rebel. I was an enemy of the things of God until I met Christ. Fifthly, zealous commitment does not uh, make one acceptable to God. That is, I really mean it. No, it's not that. The beginning of verse 6. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Paul zealously was committed to the Jewish legalistic society of his day, even more than his forefathers. Listen to what Galatians 1, 13 and 14 indicate. He says, for you uh, have heard, for you have heard of my conversation, my lifestyle in time past. In the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above many of my equals, more of my peers than anybody in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the tradition of my fathers. I was a zealot. Hebrew of the Hebrews, Pharisee, tribe of Benjamin, named after the first king, uh, and a uh, religious zealot, and yet none of that mattered one bit. Finally, in this first point, it's not righteous observance. Look at verse 6 at the end. As touching the righteousness which is in the law blameless. Paul said that he kept God's law perfectly, at least he thought he did. He thought he had good works, which were good enough, but he came to realize that the observance of the law in the most strict fashion known to man, according to his own testimony, he even said, and you all know this, did not measure up on the scale one iota. It meant nothing in the eyes of of God. And that's because all of the self-righteousness one can generate, no matter how good you try to be, it means nothing in the eyes of the Lord. Warren Wiersbe, uh, whom I affirm and enjoy and like, um, 
just mis- misspoke a little bit on a quote I'm going to share with you. He said, there's only one good work that takes the sinner to heaven, the finished work of Christ on the cross. What's incorrect about that statement? What is it? Sinners don't go to heaven. Who goes to heaven? Saints. So we appreciate the spirit of what he's saying. There's only one good work, and that's what Christ has done. But when he saves you from being a sinner, you become a saint. The books of Paul, to the saints at Philippi, at Corinth, at Rome, at Colossae, and the like. But there's only one good work, and it's not anything you have done or I have done. It is what he has done. So, this first point speaks of justification. is only by faith, never by self-effort. And all God's people said, amen. It's not by, you can try as best you can, and you will fall woefully infinitely short. Only Christ measures up. And then we see in verses 7 through 9 a a parenthetical transition from the first section uh, in our text today to uh, the the final section that we'll consider. And these three verses, verses 7 through 9, transition from telling us how a person cannot be justified and, and then into the practical section. And that's very much like the Apostle Paul. He goes from position to parentheses to practice. Sometimes the parentheses isn't there. Many, in many cases it is, but it is uh, in this case. And let's look at this parenthetical, uh, these parenthetical three verses. First of all, verses seven and eight. We see that he says the saved person has lost self Righteousness. Notice in verse 7, but what things were gained to me, that which I thought counted, those I counted as loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless. And I count all things but loss so that I might gain the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. So what he is saying in these two verses is that a saved person, when you come to faith in Christ, you lose your self-righteousness. Uh, you, you, you lose the empty, futile hope that your own works, that your own ethnicity, that your own religion, that your own anything could ever provide standing with God. That is gone. And aren't you thankful that it's gone? Because it was futile and it was empty. And I would try and I would pass a New Year's resolution and, uh, uh, and on and on. I can remember one time as a foolish 16 or 17-year-old of uh, 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 maybe hearing something on, uh, it was around Christmas, and I thought to myself, uh, okay, this year on Christmas Day, December 25th, I'm going to do something really righteous. And, I, and folks, uh, I, I, I'm, not being, I'm not being a smart aleck. I truly believe this, and I truly meant it. For 24 hours, I, I'm not going to put anything into my body to pollute my mind relative to alcohol and drugs. I thought I was honoring God. I'm going to go 24 hours and intentionally not get loaded. Now, that's how pitiful it is. Now, other lost people might not do that, but I'll start giving more money to the church. I'll, uh, I'll forgive that 
that uh, wicked uh, relative who has hurt me. I'll, whatever it might be, all kinds of self-effort. When the person gets saved, all of that goes into the junk pile because it is lost. It is nothing. It is refuse. It is dung. It is trash. Because what it was doing uh, was convincing you that you were able to become acceptable to God in your own effort. Well, uh, that, uh, that can never happen. And then in verse 9, it tells us that the saved person has gained Christ righteousness. Look at, look at verse 9. And I am found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, that is through self-effort, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now, I've gained that. I found that. Or better yet, I was found with that in Christ saving me. Saved people are righteous people. The difference between a lost person and a saved person, the one stands in self-righteousness, motivated by pride, motivated by, uh, I want to try to gain God's approval. The believer, the true convert, says, I can't gain God's approval. I never have been able to. I never will be able to. But Christ, his sacrifice was acceptable, and now I've received him. I'm clothed in him. I am covered by his blood, his, his uh, forgiveness Wow, what a difference. In fact, it says in 2 Corinthians, and you know the verse 521, for he, God the Father, hath made him Christ the Son to be sin for us. He didn't know any sin. What, and what would happen? So that we might be clothed in the righteousness, I'm adding those words, of God in him, in Christ. That's the meaning of it. That I might be found righteous in the eyes of God by virtue of what Christ has done. Isaiah 61 speaks to this to some degree, not prophetically, but just uh, the principle. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decked himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorned herself with her jewels. In other words, I now stand as precious as a precious jewel in the eyes of the Lord because of him clothing me in his righteousness. Praise the Lord. Paul is saying it cannot be by human effort. It never has been that way. In fact, in the garden, the effort of Adam and Eve were to sew fig leaves together. Human effort. And God came and said, Adam, where are you? And Adam was discovered. Why'd you hide? Uh, because uh, uh, I was naked. Who told you you were? <laughs> the Lord has a way of putting you in the corner, doesn't he? And, and with no escape. And there's no way out. But of course, he's doing it because he's merciful. The fig leaves weren't good. In fact, they were bad because they were by human effort. And so God killed an animal, covered them with coats. He made an atonement. He covered their, the evidence of their sinfulness. And they received that 
they put on the garments uh, by faith and uh, they, they were covered um, by him. You know, Romans 4 speaks to this very issue. Verses 3 through 10, it says, For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now, you've got to follow this argument all the way along. He believed, and he was made righteous. Now, to him that works is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. And what is the reward of debt? The wages of sin is death. That's the reward. You, you owe But to him that worketh not, that is not self-effort, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputed righteousness without works. Now, Paul is saying that what, what David said in the Psalms is that he believed God and that was the cause for righteousness. Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute or credit sin to his account. Comes this blessedness upon, upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also? In other words, is it just for the Jew or is it also for the Gentile? Um, for we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? How was it credited to his account? Was he in circumcision or in uncircumcision when that happened? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. Before Abraham took the physical sign of the covenant, he was justified by faith. Praise the Lord, we're given such insight into how this all, this, the mechanism, if you will, works. And it's always, it always is, it always has been by faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone. It's the position of saved people. Doesn't mean we're perfect in our actions and our attitudes. It means that by virtue of being clothed in the perfect garment of Christ, the righteous judge declares us not guilty. You're acquitted. You're forgiven. The sentence has already been met by one who is righteous. Now, that begs the question. I close with this. Well, that means that I can just do any old thing I want because I'm forgiven. I'm righteous. I'm clothed in his righteousness. Let me eat, drink, and be merry. After all, I'm secure in him. Well, Paul addressed that in Romans 6.1. What shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the next phrase was, Yes, that's, those are the words, but that's not how he would have said it. How would he have said it? God forbid. Of course you're not going to be like that. Of course a believer is not like that. And verses 10 and 11 allude to that very issue of practical righteousness. Sanctification cannot come by the law, but by faith only. And I debated about covering verses 10 and 11 because it's getting a little bit lengthy. Um, and so I'm just going to allude to it this morning and do more of an exegesis, picking up with that the next time we're in Philippians. And so we'll go back and re-address verses 10 and 11 
the next time because I'm not going to do it justice. We're going to do a deeper dive. But we learned in verses 4 to 6, our righteousness for salvation comes by faith alone. So too, our practice of righteous lives comes by faith. You see, it's not that I get saved and then I just live any old way I want. That, that, that cannot be uh, theologically correct. And it, and it drew me to uh, the, the, um, the fifth point of the tulip. Those who have ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, the doctrines of grace and the perseverance of the saints. And a website dealing with the perseverance of the saints, Robert uh, Kaminga, I've never heard of him before, wrote this. However, that God sovereignly preserves his chosen and redeemed saints, which he does, does not take away their responsibility to live holy and thankful lives. That is profoundly true. It does not release me from my responsibility. True Calvinism, or the doctrines of grace, has never taught this and never will. God does preserve his people in salvation, but always in such a way that they also persevere in holiness. Folks, I have a new nature. I'm not the same one. A fish has one nature. A fish must live in the water. It cannot live. Oh, he might visit the air from time to time, but he can't live there. Well, I have a new nature. The nature is created in righteousness and true holiness. It's the nature of the Lord as a believer, as do you if you're saved. So you, it's not that you might be able to, no, you cannot continue to do that. Continuing on with the quote, um, God does preserve his people, but they persevere in holiness. That is why the canons of Dort use the name perseverance of saints to make it as clear as possible that this doctrine does not give saints, his saints, the excuse to be anything but saints in their conduct. It is emphatically saints who are preserved by the grace of God. Those who are unholy, wicked, profane, do not and cannot have the hope of being preserved. And Psalm 37, 28 says much of that. For the Lord loves judgment, justice, and forsakes not his saints. They are preserved forever, but the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. What is it saying? True believers remain true believers. We persevere and he preserves. And so verses 10 and 11 speak to that. I want to grow in knowing him. I, I want that power, the power of the resurrection and the fellowship, even fellowship if it means suffering with him and suffering for him. That's the new nature. That's the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God in your heart, the Word of God teaching you and changing you moment by moment. And so those who have experienced justification, positional righteousness, are now walking in experiencing sanctification, practical righteousness in the here and now, even to the degree of martyrdom. The theme of this text do not trust self for salvation, to be saved, nor to walk 
with him. Because, folks, believers, uh, this is a stranglehold on believers. Genuine followers of Christ get saved and then somehow uh, imagine that now that I'm saved, I need to gut it out in my Christian life. I need to um, endure instead of enjoy. I need to make something happen. I've got to study more. I have to pray more. I have to give more. Instead of, God, I want to love you more and more. I want to experience the power of your resurrection. I want to experience even to the point of martyrdom. And so when I make my dependency on him the focus, you're not going to have to pistol whip me to pray and study and give and and, and the like. You, You follow that? It is not by human effort that you grow in the Lord. It is by faith and dependency on him moment by moment. And, and then all of a sudden, you turn around. It's just like a child. A, a, a child didn't, get any, didn't do anything to get here. A baby uh, just kind of uh, let go and he or she is born. Well, growing up, you can't manufacture your own air. You can't manufacture all the things that are already here that you must have. He has done that. He's given us all things for life and godliness. Therefore, my dependency in the spiritual realm is just as much on him, wholly on him. And you see, he won't deny himself. He won't fail himself. And as I depend on him, as I turn full, full-faced and, and, and to- wholehearted to him, saying, yes, Lord, I do desire to honor you, and I am dust. You're going to have to do something with this lump of clay And he says, well, I'll do a lot with that lump of clay. Here we go. And by faith, he causes me and causes you to be fruitful for him. My, I want to be fruitful. Amen? I want to finish strong. Paul said you can do that as long as you're not trusting self, but trusting him wholly. Lord, I'm so thankful that that's the message of your word. It's all by grace through faith, from beginning to end. And there's so much more in this text. Give uh, wisdom and insight and understanding in the days and weeks to come. But for now, we're thankful for the reminder of not to depend on self, but to wholly depend on you. Lord, would you touch the heart of the one here? Maybe many here. Almost certainly, many watching worldwide by way of internet who have never experienced justification by faith, been saved, come out of sinful darkness into your marvelous light. Lord, would you grab a hold of that heart, grant repentance to turn from sin and faith to turn to you for your glory. Would you do that work that only you can do? We'll give you